Welcome to the IMDb Journey Podcast, where we break down every movie from the top 250 and give our thoughts, our reviews, and any general discussion along the way. My name is Daniel Henderson, and I have on good account that this podcast is very good. And I'm Dean Jeffrey, and after watching this, I think maybe I married too young. Oh, God. And I don't mean me personally. <laughs> I mean my wife. <laughs> And today we'll be breaking down the Wes Anderson all-star Oscar darling, the Grand Budapest Hotel. Well, kind of. Not really. No. So well, today for you guys, but not today for us. Yes. Yeah, so first off, hello, Dean. It's been a while since we've done a recording here. It's been a very long time. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I had a little couple of weeks off, so... There you go. It was fantastic. Yeah. I haven't been away with the family in years now at this point, so it was, uh, yeah, really, really fun. I held the fort down with the podcast in terms of getting episodes out and all that good stuff, you as did, usual. You did click those buttons yes. very well. <laughs> Thank you. I was just That's just what I wanted, some recognition. <laughs> I didn't go on holiday. I've uh, been working. Didn't ask. You never do. How was work? I always got to start my conversations. How was work? Work was fine. Work's been okay. Have you done anything else? I actually haven't been doing too much, mate. My holidays will come another time. Yes, they will. So be sure to stick around after the breakdown where we'll be looking at the reviews that you, the listeners, gave to the Grand Budapest Hotel. We'll be looking at the answers to our question of the week, which is what is your favourite Wes Anderson film, which will also be our top five this week. We'll take a look at our Academy Award results. Uh, We put out a couple of weeks ago our draft and our rankings challenge. There have been maybe one winner, maybe two winners. So we'll find out the results of that. We'll also take a look at last week's Pod v Pod v Pod v Pod draft results between Dean, Billy at the We Watch the Thing podcast, Paul at the Countdown podcast, and Sam at the Movie Reviews and 20 Qs podcast. And after all that, we'll take a look at our final four results in the best 1950s film tournament. And then we'll be finding out what film we'll be watching next time, which we already know. It's Stand By Me. We are holding off on our Stand By Me podcast because Dean has been away for a couple of weeks here. Yeah, a bit of behind the scenes. We actually recorded this episode for our patrons. A while ago now, was yep. it eight, eight months maybe? Six months? I wouldn't say that far. Maybe four. Oh, no, six is probably good. Six is better than my four. Yeah, six is better than yeah, four. Back on the old so, audio equipment. Yeah, so if you do notice an audio change from what uh, you're experiencing now, that is why. It is an older episode. Yeah, speaking of the Patreon, we did do a full Wes Anderson film series breakdown over on the Patreon and... We did do Grand Budapest Hotel, obviously. It's part of the film series, and we decided to give the patrons a full breakdown on that film. So, obviously, we had that in our back pocket, and what better time to use it than the time we cannot record a full podcast. Yeah, no, worked out very nicely having that one there. So, if you do want to hear our thoughts on all the other Wes Anderson films, head on over to our patron.com slash Journey and check it out. Absolutely. So, Dean, we haven't just been doing our podcast recently, have we? No, we haven't. We've uh, been busy little boys, haven't we? Yes, we have. We've been on the Countdown Movie and TV Reviews podcast with Paul and Wayne, where we put in our top 10 best picture winners against their list. And suffice to say, we, we won. <laughs> yeah, let, let's, let's, let's uh, not, not uh, bury the lead here. They have never lost against guest podcasts. That's right. And we, we beat them. Yeah. We beat them fair, fair and, and square. square. <laughs> They have claimed all sorts of terrible, terrible things that we have done. Slander. Slander. (laughs) We are honest to goodness, good, decent podcasts who would never do anything to sully the good name of your fantastic voting systems on your Countdown fans only Facebook page. (laughs) There's no bias there at all against other podcasts. Just just because we have loyal listeners who want to... Who want to help us out? And they love the show. They're like, we want to, we want to get on to the countdown community, 
join that awesome group that's over there and you know help our help our good friends Dan and Dean on winning this thing. They I mean it's we didn't tell them who to vote for. Exactly. We just said, Hey, we're on this podcast. If you want to listen to it, you know, here's how to check it out, here's how to vote. So no, we can't help it if our lists yes. were far, far superior to your list. <laughs> no, we are, of course, just having a bit of a laugh here. What it do you mean? <laughs> no, it we was, smashed them. <laughs> it was a really fun time over there. We had such a blast with Paul and Wayne on their show and on our show, obviously, from a couple of weeks back. It really was a great time. And yes, we, we did beat them in their poll. I was very pleased with that in the end because we did win on our poll. And I will be beating Paul in this movie watching challenge. So why don't we take a look at the numbers? Let's. I'm winning. I'm winning. So at the time of this recording, now I know that Paul. Hasn't logged all the films that he's put on. He's just come back from a trip from Japan. But I'm going to hold my head high Namaste. here. <laughs> that based off Letterboxd, he is on 77 and I am on 94. So I am far away winning right now. I mean, you know, it doesn't it doesn't hurt that I watched uh, six films in one day legitimately. You know, I was uh, bathing the kids at one for one of them. Yeah, you're cooking dinner, yeah. doing your crossword. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. Having a sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, all legitimate, Paul. All, and Wayne, all legitimate. Yeah, how's Wayne's form? Accusing you of not being able to watch six films in a day. Come on, Wayne. Come on. It's not hard. <laughs> no, but that is the tally so far. It's Obviously, it's only month three. So plenty of opportunity left for Paul to catch up and me to continue to beat him. Yeah, good luck, Paul. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here. Give you And by break, I mean a big break because we're not recording anything for the next hour. We're going to give you a couple of promos here. One, of course, from Nick and Justin at the Epic Film Guys for their live stream for The Cure coming up, which we're going to be part of this year. We are very excited to be a part of this. Fantastic cause. Could not be more on board, guys. Yeah, you're exactly right, Dean. So we'll be back on the other side of this break with The Grand Puta Best Hotel. Justin, can you believe it's almost time? Time for what? The 2019 live stream for The Cure. This is our third year hosting this amazing event with every single cent going toward cancer research. The Cancer Research Institute funds research into immunotherapy to create a future immune to all forms of cancer. And this amazing nonprofit organization is rated over 92% by CharityNavigator.org and puts 88 cents of every dollar toward cancer research. Last year, thanks to an amazing team of collaborators, fans, supporters, and listeners, we raised over $5,000 in 30 hours on the air. And this year, with your help, we're going for our biggest goal yet. Tune in May 17th to the 19th on twitch.tv slash epicfilmguys for 40 hours of amazing content as we try to reach $7,500. For more information or to find out how you can become a part of the event, please visit www.livestreamforthecure.com. Together, we can make a difference. Oh, hi. I didn't see you there. Well, nerds, geeks, and newcomers alike, we're the Shaken Not Nerd podcast, where each week we review movies and video games and discuss what's going on in the nerd world. With me, as always, is my co-host, Ian the Huge Footlong Johnson. Hey, babes. The Tom. Hello there. And Ollie, also known as Big Red. Hi. And I'm your host, Doody Dootrum. And this is us. About five minutes beforehand, I was talking to my friends, being like, they make me say I love Harvey Norman. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing it. I'm not, I'm do, I'm not doing it. The second they said I'm like, I love Harvey Norman! Fresh it! I'll suck it! Pink just released a new album, which apparently is really Thank good. Thank God. Title purple. 
pink rain. No. <laughs> Two in the. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find us, guys? Why are you looking at me this time? <laughs> well, I do believe you can find us on any relevant social media outlets. Or the podcast app of choice. Mm. Oh, there are a lot of good ones. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Shaken Up Nerd. And so my life began. Junior lobby boy in training under the strict command of Monsieur Gustav H. <laughs> Many of the hotel's most valued and distinguished guests came for him. I love you. I love you. She was dynamite in the sack, by the way. She was 84. Mm, I've had older. This was also when I met Agatha. She's charming. She's so charming. Is he flirting with you? Yes. I approve of this union. I became his pupil, and he was to be my counselor and guardian. The police are here. Tell them I'll be right down. She's been murdered, and you think I did it. So, The Grand Budapest Hotel, released in 2014, starring, stop when you've had enough, Ralph Fiennes, F. Murray Abraham, Adrian Brody, Willem Dafoe, Jeff Goldblum, Harvey Keitel, Jude Law, Bill Murray, Edward Norton, Shersha Ronan, Jason Schwartzman, Leah Sado, Tilda Swinton, Tom Wilkinson, Owen Wilson, Tony Revolori. Anyone else I'm missing? Oh, there's a lot. <laughs> this cast is pretty amazing. It actually includes four Oscar winners yes. and 12 Oscar nominees. Massive, that massive is, cast. That's enormous talent on show here. And it's the eighth film directed by Wes Anderson. The seventh in a row with Bill Murray. Yes, he's still going. <laughs> and the next one will be the eighth. Yep. I wonder what role he's going to have in Wes Anderson's tenth film. No doubt some moustache-twirling fellow <laughs> yes, again. Yes, of course, of course. <laughs> so, this film is an, an American-German-British co-production that was actually financed by German financial companies and film funding organizations, and it was filmed in Germany. Yeah, very nice. And I did actually see that, even though it was filmed in Germany, the actual inspiration for the look and feel of it all Wes Anderson actually got from Prague. Yeah, of course. The film was actually released on the 7th of March in 2014 and was the opening film for the 64th Berlin International Film Festival in February 2014, where it won the Jury Grand Prix Silver Bear Award. Damn. Yeah, impressive. Solid effort. Not biased at all, though, you know? <laughs> Financed and filmed in Germany. <laughs> yes, of course. Wins this German award. <laughs> Some I of feel, the financiers are actually a part of the, the jury. <laughs> I feel, yeah, I feel bad for all the other quality German films that year that were just like, oh, come on. Who's this American guy coming in and taking all that shit? <laughs> so we talk about Wes Anderson budgets all the time. This had a budget of $25 million, rather. Gee, that's low. Yeah, it's pretty good, though. In its theatrical release... The Grand Budapest Hotel grossed $174 million worldwide, mm. 46 for the year. It was also Wes Anderson's most successful live-action film in the UK, reaching number one in the box office in its third week with £6.31 million. It was also Wes Anderson's first number one film in the UK. And in North America, it grossed overall $59 million. And it was actually the highest-grossing independent film of 2014 and the highest-grossing limited-release film in 2014 because in its first week, it grossed $811,000 on just four screens. I see. I read that. I don't understand that. Like, Wes Anderson is now an established director. Yes, he's not pulling in enormous numbers, but people are going to see the movie. Like, why would you only have it on a limited release? Maybe it costs less. Maybe it costs more with the budget to get it into more more theatres. I guess, but I mean, they, they must have known that this film was <laughs> better than most of his other films, surely. Well, they might have said that about some of the other films that tanked as well. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's fair. Except for Steve Zizou, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> 
They all knew. Yeah, I think they did. <laughs> but the Grand Budapest Hotel got widespread acclaim from film critics and many included it in their year-end top 10 lists. Mm. The film led the BAFTA nominations with 11 nominations, including Best Film and Best Director for Wes Anderson and Best Actor for Ray Fiennes. The film won the Golden Globe Award for Best Motion Picture in Musical or Comedy and got three more nominations there, including Best Director for Wes Anderson. But in the big ceremony, it got nine Academy Award nominations, joining Birdman for the most nominations that year. Yeah, it actually won four Oscars. So it, it got wins in costume, makeup and hairstyle, the score and production design. Yeah, so it took home a, a quite a hefty haul for Wes Anderson. Definitely. And it did get nominated for Best Picture in uh, one of those nine. Yes. It's the only one he's got nominated for Best Picture, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. So in a 2016 BBC poll, critics voted the film the 21st greatest film since 2000. Okay. That's... Incorrect. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it's good that, that critics like it. Just going back to the score, though, um, we mentioned it won an Oscar for it. It actually features a very rare instrument that's very rarely used called the... Bal- <laughs> I know I'm going to stuff this up. Balalaika. Not even close. Oh, I think that was pretty good. <laughs> Which is a triangular-shaped Russian folk instrument with three strings. Trust Wes Anderson to... Put in some weird, quirky instruments. Well, to that's score. the thing. Like you could, it's just it's effort. You know, he definitely does not shy away from oh, effort he's unless very he's making, precise. you know, fantastic Mr. Oh, Fox <laughs> and doesn't want to leave his apartment in Paris. <laughs> he had stuff to do. All right, <laughs> I bet it showed. And with an average of eight point one over six hundred and five thousand ratings, it currently sits in the IMDb Top Two Fifty list at number one hundred and eighty-eight. Yeah, and it's easy to see why this is the only Wes Anderson film that actually cracks the Top Two Fifty. It feels much more polished than his other films. Oh, yeah, completely agree. All right, so it's my turn for a plot summary. The Adventures of Gustav H., a legendary concierge at a famous hotel in the fictional republic of Zubroqua between the First and Second World Wars and Zero Mustafa, the lobby boy who becomes his most trusted friend. Mm. Keeping it short and sweet as usual. Why not? All right, let's get into it, Dean. So we already get some Wes Anderson quirkiness here with the, please set your monitor to 16 by 9. Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't. (laughs) Did you do anything with that? No, I mean... I admit, I did. did I I tried it and I thought, this just looks stupid, so I left it at the default. Okay, but we already know this is going to be shifting aspect ratios just from this already. Yep. So... That's what I was going to ask you. Like, who doesn't have their settings already set to sixteen by nine? Like, did someone have a better option than pan and scan? I have no idea. I don't. I don't. I honestly don't know too much about the ratios. Did you ever know what pan and scan was? No, I've never heard that. Okay, so pan and scan because movies always they get shot in like sixteen by nine or whatever. Like some of those those facts and figures there where it becomes like a rectangle, right? Mm. But back in the day, our TVs were square. Mm. So when the DVDs came out, there was an option for 16 by 9 where it would actually shrink to a rectangle on the TV, which would make it look quite small. Or they would do pan and scan where they would literally have the screen fill up of the movie and they would make it like a new camera where it would select certain points on each shot where you would need to be looking and it would actually make camera movements to certain parts so you would fill the screen. It was terrible. It was not. It's obviously not how the director intended the scenes to look. It actually became like a new director. These pan and scans for what? people who wanted to have their square TVs filled to the brim. Jesus, I, I never like, ever used it. I feel like I've seen TVs and ratios where it's filled the TV and just cut the sides off. 
Yeah, but then obviously you're going to miss some stuff on the sides. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, like, so with Panda Scan, if, if something on the side needed to be shown, they would oh, actually trigger, so yeah, trigger it across. Yeah, that's odd. Yeah. But we do get this text come up about the farthest eastern boundary of Europe. Mm-hmm. I did a little bit of research on this, and just to see what the actual farthest eastern boundary of Europe was. Yeah. And I got into this whole wormhole of whether Russia oh, is, is a European country or an Asian country, which I... I don't know. I don't know what I thought it was, but apparently it's it's both. It's part of Eurasia. Okay, I always assumed it was Asia. For I some thought reason. it was Asia, but yeah. when I when you search that, you get some cape in the far eastern point of Russia. Okay, but uh, this is something that is actually debated by people and has cultural and you know like socio connotations that need to be taken into account for it. And I think the Cold War actually affected what you would call Eastern Europe as well. Oh, absolutely. So, I think it was just, all that aside, I just did like that it's it's not clear. Like, you can't search farthest eastern point of Europe and get an exact location where this takes place. Okay. So, it's a very, it's even though it sounds specific, it's actually a broad term. Look at you, looking at information, going, doing some hard research. Oh, you know me. I try. <laughs> So it is set in the former Republic of Zubroka. Zubroka? What did you say before? I'm pretty sure I said Zubroka. Yeah, we'll go with Zubroka. Zubroka is actually a Polish vodka. Sounds yum. You're, I like vodka. You're a vodka fan, are I you? am a vodka fan. For the taste? Probably for the alcohol. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're not drinking vodka straight, are you? I don't drink anything straight, really. Yeah, that's a fair call. Except, oh, not even uh, Jägermeister. Ugh. Tequila? Yeah, okay. But I'm not, I'm not like downing tequila shots as my drink of preference. <laughs> no, but I'm just trying to think like- But they're shots. They're a lot different. Like if you're talking like a vodka, that's a straight vodka, you're having sips. You're, yeah. You're casually yeah. sipping like a, a bourbon as well. Yep. yep. But um, no, I'm, not, I'm more of a, a mix kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Put a bit of lemonade in my vodka, please. <laughs> <laughs> so we did talk about the score of this film earlier, but we start out here with- you get almost like a choir sing-along. Maybe not sing-along. I wasn't sitting on my couch <laughs> singing to it. but well, I was. <laughs> you get this choir um, song in the background and you see this girl walking up towards this cemetery. And what struck me immediately is you've got the very first shot of this film, just massive symmetry going on. Yeah. He does Cla- not muck around. Classic Wes Anderson symmetry. It's straight in there already. But we get this girl come to the cemetery. She's holding this book. She puts a key on this statue. Did you see who the head of the statue was? Um, I mean, I know now who it is. Oh, I didn't. Who was it? It's Tom Wilkinson. It's the author. Oh, okay. I didn't pick that up. I, I thought it could have been Ray Fiennes for all I know. Like, they looked similar with the mustaches and that. No, no, no. I'm certain it's um, Tom Wilkinson. And it says, it says on his... Are you sure? Because they're putting these keys on the statue. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it either be like Mustafa or Gustav? I mean, that would make more sense. Yeah. But, I mean, it's possible. Who knows, really? Who knows? It would make more sense actually being Gustavo Zero with the keys going on it. I just honestly thought it was Tom Wilkinson. It could be any one of them. Hmm. But yeah, so she has her book here, The Grand Budapest Hotel. I think I think it's Tom Wilkinson because the back picture looked like the statue on the book. Is it the back picture Tom Wilkinson or is it Jude Law? It's not Jude Law. It'd be Tom Wilkinson. Okay, so he's written the book when he was looking like Tom Wilkinson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, it could be like a like a famous book by now, written by him, and he's since passed. Like, is this conversation you get from Tom Wilkinson? Is this happening now? No, no, God, no. Okay, so I could see we go back in time several times. We go back to um, good old 1985. Okay, so the fact that that's happened, I I get your credence that 
I think that it actually might be Tom Wilkinson's head on the statue. Yeah. But yeah, 1985. And the aspect ratio changes. Hmm. It does. Yeah. There's our first little indication that we've changed time. And he's talking to the camera. He's talking to us about his journey to the Grand Budapest Hotel. And what I found weird, kind of random, was that they cut away to this kid shooting him with a little pellet gun halfway through his conversation. <laughs> Didn't really go anywhere. I guess it's trying to show that this is going to have a mix of serious tones with some comedic right in the middle of it. Oh, good pickup. And you find that happens a lot, especially with the dialogue that Gustav has, where he's he's very serious, but then he just he just cuts to some very funny line that is still in that sort of um, still in character. Yeah, but definite tone shift. Yeah. What'd you make of what the author was actually saying here about how authors don't just walk around constantly dreaming up brand new plot for more stories for them, but they have, once people know they're authors, people come to them with stories. I felt like this may have been sort of, you know, Wes Anderson saying- it's definitely Wes Anderson talking. You know, here. like once, once everyone knows he's a writer and director, he gets a lot of people coming up to him with these crazy stories, you know, mm-hmm. oh, hear my story, you should do a movie about it. Oh, so hard, Wes Anderson. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, okay. All these people heckling on me so much, telling me all their stories. Give it up. Mm. What do you think of this intro here? Because I, I actually liked it. I think it's probably my favourite intro of the bunch. I mean, it's pretty good. I like that, like, you see Wes Anderson, his themes throughout all his films, uh, books, storytelling. Yeah. And the fact that this is a story within a story within a story, oh, the, he's the got mul- multi-layered. He's like, this is like the inception of books. This is like bloody Heart of Darkness. <laughs> Did you ever study Heart of Darkness? It's no. like a narrator telling a story about a narrator telling a story. And it's all about like Joseph Conrad separating himself as the person writing it from the characters. It's really, hmm. it's just impressive storytelling, honestly. Do you really, think this is impressive storytelling? I do. Yeah, I, I really, really do. do. And what I love most about this intro, we don't get this fucking character name and introduction on every single character at the start. It just felt so much more natural. Like, we don't need that. We can get introduced to other characters as our protagonists are introduced to other characters. We can do it ourselves. We don't need everyone having their character name straight up at the start. We're going to forget them immediately, a la Steve Zizou. Exactly. So, as he's talking about it, we do end up looking at the actual Grand Budapest Hotel, finally. And I've got to say, it looks stunning. It's full of really bright colours. And it's obviously what the author was thinking of when he wrote this book. But now we get this cut to 1968, again going back in time, and the colours are almost all gone. Like, it's gone really hard into dirty, and the bright pink has become like a almost a grey. So, is this this pink version of the Grand Budapest, this is his telling of this of the Grand Budapest Hotel, what it looks like From in the his 30s. mind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but then you go back to reality. When, when he's actually there. hearing the story yeah. and it's all old and decrepit. And you notice the transition here as well because the aspect ratio changes, but then also mid-narration, it changes to Jude Law. Yeah. Which is very fluent, I, I think. I did not pick up immediately that it was the same character. Oh, really? Yeah, it wasn't an immediate thing for me. I was doing it and I was like, hang on, hold on, this guy's an author. T- okay, it's the same guy. Is this your first time seeing this? No, it's the second. Okay. But I didn't really think too much about it the first time I saw it. And I don't mean I didn't like it, I just meant... I watched it, enjoyed it, and moved on. Like, I didn't okay. really pay it any extra time. So, yeah, off the bat, I'll say I did enjoy doing this rewatch. What did you think of the animation style that is on, on display here? It fits. Exactly. It's not, it doesn't feel off. It doesn't feel like a gimmick or like he's playing with a genre just because he's Wendell Anderson and he's being weird. It fits this story. There is a uh, scene coming up later on where it makes sense. Like, I'm reminded of 
Moonrise Kingdom and Steve Zizou where the animation was just for me, it just didn't fit. It was terrible. I yep. thought it was really bad. Yep. But now looking at this one, it definitely feels intentional and it feels necessary and right for this story. Mm. And I'll, I'll get to that scene later on where it really stood out, but I didn't mind it. So this is where we get another Wes Anderson trope that he always does where he does the quick shots between all the little bits and pieces describing what's happening here and here he's talking about the Grand Budapest Hotel certain areas of the hotel and its features yeah and as I said before it is looking shabby right it's not as it was first pictured and I read that they actually filmed all of this stuff first so they'd found this old hotel it was actually a department store the lobby in truth but they'd found this area that was perfect for what Wes Anderson wanted but it was old and run down. So they filmed all of these scenes with uh, between Jude Law and F. Murray Abraham first and then had the team come in and restore it back to its original beauty. Yeah. Which makes sense. Of course, it does. But who do we get in this part here? Jason oh, Bloody Schwartzman. So over this guy. Luckily, he, brings, he brings nothing. Like, he's just a nothing character in so many of these films. But isn't that good? Don't you want him as a nothing character in the sidelines? I'm glad he doesn't have a meaty role. I just mean, (laughs) he's just... He's got no charisma. I'm really not sure what Wes Anderson sees in this guy. I actually don't mind the added touch of his slightly frazzled hair on the side. We've already, we, we get a description of him that he doesn't really take his job too seriously, mm. and he's just not looking prim and proper for a concierge at the moment. What I did notice here is that the voiceover dialogue, the narration, is very highbrow. And the reason it's like that is because it's been read out of a book, out of the Grand Budapest Hotel book that they're talking about here, which Wes Anderson, he uses a fair bloody amount in all these films. It's like very book-centric, so I can understand why the way the dialogue is written here is spoken like that. Yeah, for sure. Like, I think what you're talking about is stuff like where, like, uh, Jason Schwartzman character, is it Jean? Motions for Jude Law to lean in, and the voiceover will say, like, Monsieur Jean signaled to me, and I leaned closer. And then he leans in. Exactly. You know? So it's yeah, it's describing like what they're doing as yeah. well. Yeah. Like, is it quirky? Yeah, of course it is. But honestly, it's very engaging, and you know you're watching something quite unusual. And something quite captivating, I must say, at this point. Yeah, I completely agree so far. I love how he just doesn't care about the guy choking. He's like, it didn't interest me. So he just got in the elevator and left. Like, they just, they pan across the choking guy and they just pan away like there's nothing. Go back to Jude Law getting in the elevator. Like, nah, that's not important. Yeah, and just before this happens, we actually get Jude Law telling us about a lot of the, a lot of the characters and guests in the hotel at the moment. And he says that they're all alone, right? And he says that occasionally they'll walk past each other and give themselves the slightest of nods, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> but he does say, then he focuses on this this old man there who's played by F. Murray Abraham, and he says that he could tell immediately that he has the air of a lonely person, that even though everyone's alone here, they're not lonely, but when you see this man, you can tell this is a lonely man. Yeah. So the concierge here tells, gives us a bit of exposition here and tells us that this guy is the owner of the hotel but he chooses to stay in like these servant quarters. So it does add a bit of mystery to this character. Yeah, especially on your first time. It's like, why is he doing that? Obviously, if you see it on a second time, you understand that this is where he stayed when he was a lobby boy. This is, mm. was his original room. I must say for me, it was like watching it for the first time because I saw this character. I didn't know who he was. Oh, really? Yeah. like I, I remembered that it was him. There's a couple of things in this film that I forgot about, uh, mainly the overall plot of the painting And I knew that the Tilda Swinton character died and there was a big murder mystery thing going on, but I forgot all about the painting and I even forgot about the prison stuff as well. Mm. So so it's like a semi-first watch for me. And I remembered some stuff, but not really enough. So the author ends up meeting Mustafa in the spa bath. And this is basically where we get the bulk of the story. What leads into the bulk of the story of them having their conversation at dinner? 
about how he got the hotel. Yeah, exactly. And it was interesting how Mustafa is... I just can't help but say Mustafa and not think of Austin Powers' Will Ferrell. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm Mustafa. I- I'm still alive, only I'm very badly burned. An author. Anyone? Can someone call an ambulance? I'm in quite a lot of pain. So we get the author inquiring about Mustafa. And Mustafa seems a bit hesitant. He's like, if you actually want to know, then we can have a conversation about it. And to me, it felt like this is how a lonely person would react. Like, this is someone who actually is showing interest in him, which maybe it wasn't like that for a long time, and who's keen to hear his story. And he's this is someone who probably doesn't talk to many people. He's mm. keen to tell it. So, it was good. Yeah, nice. And we get the dinner. Yes. I like the little look of... Mustafa, when he mentioned their mutual friend, and you cut to the author and you see Jason Schwartzman pop his head in the side, like, yep, that's him. They don't need to show, they don't need to, you know, acknowledge him. He's yeah. just there, like, yep, they're talking about him, and he's yeah. gone. And we get another classic Wes Anderson thing here chapters, parts, this yes. whole, whole movie. We've got part one here M. Gustav. Gustav. Just has to have the title card. Exactly. But again, I didn't mind it as much here. Like, no, it's fine. Yeah, I didn't have an issue with it because. Well, firstly, he's basically telling a story of the Grand Budapest Hotel, mm-hmm. which is a book. So, it, ma- it fits in much more appropriately than, say, in Rushmore, for example. Yeah, but Rushmore was Monday, Tuesday. They're, they're doing days in that one. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, that's just doing it for the sake of doing it, for the sake of being different. Whereas this has actual chapters of a book that exists in this movie in real life. Okay, fair enough. So, we get another time period, 1932. And the aspect ratio has changed to the old 4 by 3 the square. Man, I'm glad you're all over this aspect ratio. Yeah. I'll be honest, I did not notice a change ever. What? <laughs> How did you not notice? <laughs> I just didn't. This looks a little strange. Is this not shortened and cut down? Was it not just a square the entire time? Man, those bars on the side are really massive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, whatever. I didn't notice. You sure you didn't have it to like perfect fit? So whenever it no, changed, it like no, just stretched no. all the way out again. And here's our introduction to M. Gustav, Ray Fiennes. Played brilliantly oh, by Ray Fiennes. Awesome in this performance here. It's so good. Yeah. Concierge extraordinaire. He's so prim and proper, but he also got that vulgarness to him too, as oh, well. Very vulgar. Yeah. I'd forgotten about this whole storyline of him betting older women. Oh, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> So we sort of get the first scene with him really is he's sitting down with his very old woman played by Tilda Swinton. And I must say again, I would not have picked this had you not mentioned it last week to me. I didn't know it was her when I first saw it. Mind you though, I saw this four years ago. I don't think I knew Tilda Swinton as an actress at that point. I don't think I'd seen any of her films. So I saw this person. I'm like, okay, this is just someone. But now looking at it, it does look like her. Oh, knowing it's her, you can definitely see it. Like, but the makeup department did a fantastic job with it. So much so that they actually spent five hours in the makeup chair a day for her to play that role. Yeah. Wes Anderson actually said, we're not usually working with a vast Brockheimer type budget on my films, so often we're trying a workaround, as you know, you've know you seen in a lot of his films. Yeah. But for the old age makeup, he said, let's just get the most expensive people we can. Yeah, exactly. And I think- It shows. It does show. You know, Angela Bassett was actually originally cast in this role. I did say that. But she had uh, conflicting schedules with Driving Miss Daisy, the play, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, she did. She yeah. did. I bet they probably would have used less makeup on her. Yeah, it would have cost less. <laughs> <laughs> and again, showing that seriousness cut with the comedic timing of him 
disgusted at her nail polish. Oh, yeah, exactly. This is a perfect example because they're talking about like this really deep stuff with her life and what she's getting out of it. And he just, yeah, he's just repulsed by, whoa, 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 whoa. It's not that I don't like it. I am physically repulsed by it. Oh, man, that's so funny. What? <laughs> so so <over> the mean. <laughs> Even the line after she just leaves in the car and he's talking to Zero from afar saying, you know, she's quite fond of me and that. Oh, yeah. He's talking to Zero like they're, they're good friends. But that vulgarness he get again, where he's like, she was shaking like a shitting dog. And he's like, okay. Like, <laughs> It was so random but yeah. compared to the other two things he said. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, he brings her over and he starts talking to him. I love how he tells her that he's going to go do it. He's he's definitely into it, but then he just gets him that gets zero to go light the candle instead. Like you go do it. I'm not I'm not I'm not dealing with this. I mean, that just sounds like good delegation to me. But he's he's putting on that facade to the to the old What's what struck me most amusing about that is that he tells zero this whole detailed step by step. Very good management here. Step by step of what needs to be done. And then as soon as he's like, hold on, who are you? And then he's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm the new guy. Well, I have to interview you immediately. Yeah. It's like, oh, what about that? Ah, oh, don't worry about that. Yeah, forget it. He's <laughs> <laughs> not even important. But you can tell he's he's very money-centric as well because he tells him to go get the cheapest candle he can, quickly light, quickly light it, and then go pick him up a, a chocolate drink or something on the way with the, with the change. Yeah. Yeah. Like he tells her, I'm going to get you the most expensive candle. I'm going to go down yeah. personally myself. And if you have any spare money, give it, give it to the shoe shiner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cripple, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and now we come to my... Excellent! Yeah, this was a close second for me. I very much considered it. I found it very difficult to pick out a favourite scene in this in this. Yeah, movie. me too. And again, just like Kill Bill Volume 1, it's not because there are a heap of bad scenes in here. It's just it's all at a pretty decent standard. Yeah. There's no scene that really stood out massively. So when I'd finished the film, I had to go back and have a look through and sort of have a good think about it. And I would say that this scene of Gustave and Zero walking through the lobby and he's he's getting staff and customers almost at the same time coming to him with all sorts of problems and things he has to deal with the way he expertly deals with all of them very not just impressive as a um as a manager which I obviously appreciate but impressive in the way that it sets up Gustave's character so brilliantly in how expertly he conducts himself and controls the job and at the same time he's doing this he's conducting a job interview of this guy zero and it's very funny yeah it's like what job experience do you have oh i've worked here so zero yeah all right uh what what education do you have well i um i started primary school zero (laughs) what family do you have and he's just like zero yeah it's like it's great it's very very funny is that where they get his name from I don't know if that's his actual name or they've just given him that name. I think it is. I, I just Now you've just mentioned that, I'm pretty sure that's where he got his name Zero from. Yeah. I mean, does he introduce himself as Zero, though, outside once the old lady's driven off? Ooh, that's just what I I'm think, not sure as. I, I think th- he does. Yeah, I think okay. he does too. Yeah, but like you said, this scene, it's it's fast-paced. Like There's a lot of things going yep. on, quick side chats with workers and guests, yet it never feels overloaded. Mm. Like, it's the script is managed so perfect mm, throughout this mm. scene. And the actual interview always takes center. Like, that's what you're focused on with these little bits and pieces coming at you. Yep. And you, you pick it up perfect. It's very well done, very well timed. I love the answer when they're in the elevator as to why he wants to work at the Grand Prix. <laughs> oh, that's great as well. Why do you want to be a lobby boy? Well, who wouldn't? At the Grand Budapest, sir. It's an institution. 
And just the cut to Gustav's face is like, very good. Like, he's so pleased. It's a fantastic answer. Yeah, like He loves the compliments. I can tell you, as someone who hires a decent amount of people in my job, I often ask, why do you want to work here? Yeah. And I swear, no one's ever given me, who wouldn't? Yeah. But uh, as soon as someone does, instant. Interview over. You've got the Very job. Well good. done. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about before how he wanted to forget about lighting the candle. When they get upstairs... And Zero asks him, were you ever a lobby boy? And he's like, what do you think? And he's like, well, everyone had to start somewhere. He's like, no, go, go light the bloody candle, which I just get out of here. Yeah. And so we see the daily cycle of Zero as a lobby boy here, but we also grow to know a bit more about Gustav as well. And like you said, how he panders to the elderly. Well, yeah, he says he loves his... Uh... No, I think it's Zero that says he loves old, rich, insecure, blonde women. they got to be blonde. Why blonde? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just all were. Speaking of Zero's working week, this guy works six and a half days a week, and I'm not talking like nine to five. He says he works 5 a.m. to midnight, six days a week, and a half. Now, what's his half day? Probably a 10-hour shift. (laughs) (laughs) It's incredible. You can work five to five. So now we're introduced to Jeff Goldblum's character, Deputy Ah, Kovacs. Good old Jeff Goldblum. Quite um, a mild-mannered role in this one. He's not his wacky, eccentric Jeff Goldblum we're used to. No, he's very reserved. It's good. Yep. I thought he was good in this. Like, he's, as you say, he doesn't stand out as amazing, but I think for the character he's playing, he's memorable, gives it a sense of character for not a lot of screen time, in fairness. No, no, you're right. Perfect. And you also get a quick glimpse of Agatha, played by Shersha Ronan. Whom I had no idea was in this, because I did not really know who Shersha Ronan was until I saw Ladybird. I do remember her being in this, and I'm the same as you, I don't remember who she was at that point but i remember once i saw ladybird that i remember that she i remember this person mm. so i went back and you know, she wasn't grand Budapest hotel obviously but we don't have to worry about her right now she comes up later on mm. we get part two madam cvdut i love the funny reveal here where zero reads something shocking in the paper oh it's so good runs up to gustav and they 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 center in on the war yeah and like look at this. tanks at the border like oh yeah. wow war's yeah. starting not pan down to the tiny little article, the, yeah. the madam is dead. Yeah. But Zero knows that that's... Like, he's not running this paper to him to show him that the war started. He's yeah. running because this old lady dies. So, Zero at this point is really getting to know what Gustav is all about. And it was... Yeah, gee, it was a funny uh, bait and switch, wasn't it? Yeah. And again, you get one of those little bits of dialogue here where Gustav's telling Zero... How fast can you pack? Five minutes. Do it. And bring a bottle of the Puy Juve 26 in an ice bucket with two glasses so we don't have to drink the cat piss they serve on the dining car. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we're in the train now, and he's talking about Madame D, and he says, Oh, how the good die young. <laughs> young! What is that? Well, he's so used to the elderly. Maybe she was one of the young elderly. Mm. But he does he does say here, interestingly, with any luck, she's left a few, I think it's Quebecs for me. Yeah, you can see he sl- subtly drops in there that he's he's looking to get some sweet inheritance from these elderly people. He's trying to pander to them and hopefully get some money out of it. Mm. Interesting. We'll come back to that later. He does say, though, dynamite in the sack. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, man. She's 84 years old. Gustav is awesome. Then he goes, I'm that older. <laughs> this whole part is hilarious. He loves it. <laughs> I like the nice shot of the soldiers coming across the window as the train stops, mm. which happens again later on. They're like, why are they stopping? And you see them at the border, and then it comes up with what is actually happening. It's October. 19. Yeah, and holy shit, I forgot Edward Norton was in this. I had not. I completely forgot. Uh, I think I just assumed at this point he'd be in it. <laughs> Albert Hickles. Playing a bit more of a serious role here than his meagre um, scout leader in Moonrise Kingdom. Mm, he does look pretty ridiculous, though. 
With his moustache. Yeah, the funny hat and the... <laughs> he just looks so small. That's true. Uh, but Liz good. He sort of comes in and saves the day here while they're getting beaten up by the other soldiers. And Basically he- taken out to be shot. Yeah. yeah. And he knows he knows Gustav and it's paid off. But you see Gustav cares for Zero here. He's He puts himself in harm's way yeah. to stop him from dying. You talk about Edward Norton coming in and saving the day as well. Gives him a card. Do you see what it said on the card? It says, free and unmolested travel. <laughs> He's, he's allowed that. Unmolested. What a- uh, Specific. What a privilege. Yes. <laughs> and then you get more of Gustav trying to act all prim and proper and sensible. You see, there are still faint glimmers of civilization left in this barbaric slaughterhouse that was once known as humanity. Indeed, that's what we provide in our own modest, humble, insignificant- And then at the end he goes- No, oh, fuck it. And just drinks his drink. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. Not, it's not worth the time now. Yeah. So now he actually gets to Madame D's house and he goes to see her in her coffin, her open coffin. Yeah. And he talks to her here as though she's still alive. Now, for me, this showed me that he's genuine in his affection for the older ladies. In particular, this one. Maybe it's just this one. There is no reason to put on an act here. Like, he genuinely feels bad for her passing. Of course. You say, of course, but you mentioned before that, you know, he's pandering to him to maybe try and get some money. And I just felt like this scene in particular did show that I don't think the money is his main motivation. It isn't. It's he a has, subtle he, thing. Yeah, he, ha- he definitely does harbour real feelings for these women. I love his conversation to her too. That's a wonderful cream you've got wearing there, darling. You look almost. You look like you're alive. <laughs> yeah, haven't looked this good in years. <laughs> and he inspects the uh, the nails and says, oh, good, you've changed it. Yeah, it's great. It's like, oh, it's funny. And so he comes across the reading of the Will and Testament. Yep. The executor is Kovacs. Yep. And there's a last minute write-in, I guess, that Gustav gets the Boy with the Apple painting? Yeah, which is, for me, it was very odd because you see that Madame D has, I think it's four children, the three women and Dimitri, played by Adrian Brody. With a moustache twirling moustache. Yeah, everyone <laughs> in this film has a moustache. Except for Willem Dafoe. And Zeros is drawn on. <laughs> But <laughs> yeah, it is. But when they pulled out that the oh, there's a last minute thing, I thought it would say that Gustav gets everything. It's just one painting. Well, that that comes to fruition at the end. No, I know that, but this whole conflict comes about solely on the basis of one painting. They they look like they're in a bloody mansion here, and they're worried about one painting. They're all completely greedy assholes. This painting is probably worth the most out of everything. I know, I know we don't know that, but these people probably want everything. It's just, it's one painting in a, in a mansion. It's just, it blew me away. I thought it was, oh, wait, he wants everything. But you see his reaction. You're getting the, the boy with the apple. He's like, wow, like you can't yeah. believe it because it's probably so bloody expensive. Mm. It is a funny exchange here between Gustav and Dimitri. <laughs> Couple of uh, Dimitri is so aggressive. Couple of um, homophobic slanders here. Very homophobic, which we shall not repeat. No, because it is not podcast. the thirties. Exactly. What do they get the over-the-shoulder punches? This fight scene between all four of them here. <laughs> well, it was funny as. It's very goofy. Like just the one punch over the shoulder, knock everyone out, and then cuts the next person does the same thing. It's like a domino effect. Yeah, I love how each punch knocks out that person yeah. immediately. <laughs> yeah. Like God, these guys are ripped. And you got Willem Dafoe here with 
looking highly menacing here oh. with his knuckle dusters. Yeah, he does look really weird here. Weirder than usual. <laughs> it's his teeth. You just notice his teeth like they're... No, I didn't. They're kind of... They look like they're almost missing. Like the bottom row of his teeth almost look like they're gone. I don't know why I was just looking at your teeth then. <laughs> oh, I was trying to just, show you. <laughs> to like see what you meant. Oh, oh. Oh, yeah. Because you have it too. <laughs> One thing they do here, which I thought was a bit weird, they get this circle that zooms, that comes in on Willem Dafoe. And I didn't know what it meant. And they do it a couple of other times. But when they do it the other times, it doesn't feel like it means the same thing here. Did you pick up on this circle that I comes in I mean, I the saw it. I didn't, I didn't really get anything from it as far as a deeper meaning. Well, it's put there for a reason. I just don't understand why it's here. Maybe to show that he's evil or... I don't know. It was random. But the fact that it comes up later on in different tones... I think I- it just wants to, us to focus a lot on that person at that time, that's all. Okay, well, it was the only one on the screen. I don't know who else we'll be focusing on. Yeah, but more so. Okay. Which is odd, because that character in that point doesn't really do a lot. No, he does do a bit later Jopling, on. Jopling, Defoe's name is. Jopling, of course. So they go to see the painting at Zero's request. It's like, oh, can yeah. I see it? Oh, don't see why not. Yep, they run around the, the mansion. They finally find it. Pretty odd that if this thing is worth as much as you say it is, and clearly it's extremely valuable, why wouldn't someone go to the painting? Like, to not even say, oh, okay, he's in the house. There's no one guarding this painting, which he's just heard is his. Surely you'd think, hey, there's a chance I might steal it here. Uh-huh. And what gets me even more is, after they steal it, they don't notice it's gone for ages. Yeah, that actually confused me a bit, where it took a while for him to realise that the painting was not on the wall anymore, in the room that they're in. Yeah. Yeah, I, I got, yeah it was a bit weird. Surely if the whole, this whole you know, origin of this conflict is this painting, surely you'd look at it. And they do say how big this painting is here with Gustav. He says, This is Van Heutel's exquisite portrayal of a beautiful boy on the cusp of manhood. Blonde, smooth, skin as white as that milk, of impeccable provenance. One of the last in private hands and unquestionably the best. It's a masterpiece. The rest of this shit is worthless junk. Like, he basically <laughs> tells you right here that this is worth it. Mm. And when they're escaping on the train here, and he's like... After they've stolen it. Of course, they've stolen it. Uh, and you have... Surge. Surge X. We'll just go with Surge. We'll go Surge. He wraps it up for him, and he sticks the envelope in the back of it as well. Mm. Which I completely forgot about at the end. Yeah, me too. Yeah. When they're on the train and he's talking to Zero and he's like, we need to keep this. She would want me to oh, keep this. yes. She loved me dearly. I will die with it hanging yeah. above my bed. Snap cut. Actually, we should sell it. <laughs> we should sell it. <laughs> they're going to come after it. Yeah, that uh, was awesome. And Ray Fiennes nails the timing of this perfect as well. Just his inflections, mm. it, it got me. It was so funny. Yeah, no, it is funny. Even when they get back to the Grand Budapest and the police arrive and they get all freaked out and he tells Zero, have you been under interrogation before? And he just casually drops, oh, well, I was tortured by the Russian military. He goes, well, you know the drill then, zip it. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's like, what? <laughs> he doesn't, he's just, okay, well, you know, he doesn't even try to acknowledge, well, yeah. wait a minute, you were tortured? He's like, okay, we'll just zip it then. Yeah. <laughs> The one shot I do remember from this movie is this part where he comes downstairs, he's under arrest and he's like... Oh, that's right. Plot thickens. She was murdered. You think it was me? He just runs away. Yeah, this comical see ya sort of thing. And they're like, wait, come back here. And they just chase after him. That's what I remember from this film. It's probably in the trailers. Most likely. So we're at part three, checkpoint 19, criminal internment camp. One week later. One week later, yeah. Yeah. So we've got Kovacs explaining that Gustav has been accused of murder. And the witness to it, the only witness apparently is Serge. Who's disappeared. Who's disappeared. It's gone. Where's he gone? We don't know. We'll find out later, though. Yes, we will. 
But I love how smooth he is talking to Zero here when he's behind the bars. He's like, I just had to beat the living shit out of this other person. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's more like the, you should see the other guy. Yeah, but he does it in that <laughs> that perfect uh, voice like, he does. Oh, we're good friends now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it feels like it just happened. And from prison, Gustav writes his letter to the staff. Which yes. Zero stands up, as we saw Gustav do earlier, and start reading to the table of- Employees. Employees. And it's good here because we sort of see Zero- Filling in for Gustav. Like, you can see that Zero is only a lobby boy now, but you can see the progression coming. Yeah, and I like how they cut to Gustav saying it while he's sitting in the prison, like he's actually Mm. talking to them. Yeah. There's a nice little bit there. We also have Joplin trying to find Serge as well, cut in here, where he talks to his sister. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tells him... Tell him Joplin says, come home. Very menacing. I mean, it's just so silly. I hate it when I see this in movies where someone's looking for someone, they go to a family member and say, oh, if you see them, you know, yeah. call me or something like this. And it's just like, well, you know that they're never going to... He's obviously on the run from you. But they need to set this minor character up for they, later on. Yeah, they yeah. do. Because it wouldn't make any sense if it was not in here. No. So this whole prison thing with Gustav walking around giving them soup, stew, broth, something like that, mm. one of those things. Yep. It actually reminded me a lot of Paddington 2. Okay, like the funny, comical, you know, striped prison outfits. Yeah, the sweet guy yeah. amongst all the hardened criminals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Oh, and he's lucky he was quite nice to that guy with the scar, wasn't he? <laughs> but later on. Mm. <laughs> wolf. Yes, of course. Speaking of wolf, or the wolf man. The wolf. Yep. Sin of the wolf. Harvey Keitel. He looks very badass here. <laughs> Shaved head Does tattoos. He? he looks ridiculous. <laughs> Even when he gets back to the, the prison room, and they get the little baker's cake. Mm. And he goes, pass me the throat slitter. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. Just back to Harvey Keitel's character here. He's actually named Ludwig. And his tattoos are inspired from a character in the 1934 film, Le Talente. Very random. Even more random, one of his tattoos actually translates to death to cows. It's Wes Anderson. It's, I think it's hardly random for him. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> that's very weird. So they do try to plan an escape, but realize they don't have the tools necessary. And this is where we get the basically in- intro to Agatha yeah, and her story. Yeah, we get it cut back, though, to F. Murray Abraham and the author back in 1968. You know how we knew that? Because the aspect ratio changed. But you didn't notice that, did you? You didn't notice that the, the black bars on the side disappeared? Well, I, I noticed that it went back to 1968 because Jude Law and F. Murray Abraham really? were there. No, I noticed the bars. Yeah, I bet you noticed the bars. Um, so, what does that but- even mean? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but the scene in the 60s here is very, very brief. It is basically just him setting himself up to talk about this again. Yeah, it is very brief. But as you say, it shows us that how important Agatha yes. is to him. Like, he's crying. So we do go back to Agatha, and she's hiding these tools in her cakes. Yes, but we do get a brief intro to like their relationship. We find out that they've actually been seeing each other for a bit because she gets the interview with Gustav as well. So it's not like he goes and befriends her after he's in prison. No, I don't. I don't think that was ever on the cards, was it? No, but I, I felt like they had this relationship going. I didn't think that he, he just. Oh, I need. I need a baker now. Let's use this woman. Did she sound weird with her Irish accent in this one? Are you so used to her ladybird? I mean, I knew she was Irish, so yeah. I mean, it, it was nice to hear her speak in her native tongue, I guess. But uh, the birthmark was odd. It's actually the shape of Mexico. They <laughs> mentioned that it is, and it actually is. Just quirky Wes Anderson, I guess. Strange. Yeah, but they're sending through the tools, and I love the 
the pan across of all the different food where they're smashing the smashing the sausage and po- oh, poking the cheese, funny. and they go yeah. to the cake like, nah, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> Don't want to ruin something so awesome looking and delicate. Yeah. So we have Kovacs here with the the, the family, Adrian Brody, Dimitri, talking about how there was a a note missing and how they wouldn't sign off on the will. Yep. Even though they're like basically threatening him, like you know, you work for us. He's like, no, I work for the the house. I yeah, work for, for the your deceased. Mom. Yeah. Yep. So I'm not doing that. And you know, he gets angry and, run- and walks away. And Defoe throws his cat out the window. Mm. <laughs> and I love it. It reminded me of the tic tac part in the Royal Tenant Bombs, where he's like, "Is this a tic tac?" When he looks, he goes, "Did he just throw my cat out the window?" <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. And then pretty fair. He looks out the window. And there's like a squashed cat on the on the road. Mm. That was rough. In fairness, if you did drop a cat from two stories, it actually wouldn't wouldn't die. No, it's a cat. Most of the time, it lands. That's yeah, hence, hence it the nine land. lives. You know. Well, cats land on their feet. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. They're built to- But it's Wes Anderson, so- Yeah, whatever. And so we get this quick little shot of the prison guys digging in their little tent with their little mini tools. I mean, it's going to take a long time for them to dig out of that mm. hole. But we also get Zero and Agatha in bed here, and he hands her the whereabouts to the location of the painting, saying that it's in code, and he needs to look, she needs to look at it with a magnifying glass. Now, when you actually see the, the note later, mm. it's not in code. The code is actually just some backwards letters and numbers. Yeah. Yeah, it's very easily readable. Yeah. Now, we see him leave through the roof here when, I guess, her dad pops her, pops his head in, which he does a couple of times when she's doing- Is that her dad? I think it's her dad. I thought that was just her boss. Could be a boss. One of the two. I think it's boss. All right. But you see him crawl out of the rooftop, and you get this shot of him on the rooftop, and in, in the far background, you see him run across the roof and leap over the building. Is this what you were mentioning earlier? Yeah. Now, it's clearly fake. Yep. And like I said, while these shots annoyed me in like Moonrise Kingdom and Steve Zizou, the fact that this world has been set up in like this cartoony, lavish way, it fit perfect for the film, so I didn't mind mm. it. So now we get the, I guess, chase scene between Kovacs and Jopling. Did you see when he picks up his coat? It has on their contents, dead cat. Yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> and then she hands him the bag with the cat. He's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kovacs goes into the museum. And there's this setup advising guests how long is left yep. <laughs> left until it closes. And he walks in, and there's like these wooden, you know, placards, I guess. Yeah, which you actually man- when you have to manually put yeah, yourself. This is not digital. Someone no. has to manually do this. It says fifteen minutes till close. <laughs> and the guard that's sitting there at the front, he's just looks like he hasn't gotten he's off so his seat in years. <laughs> Kovacs walks in, and he's sort of like, Oh, what are you doing? Like we're closing soon. Yeah, he doesn't say anything, it's just you can tell that's yep. what he's thinking. And then we get Joplin walk in. And it's changed. 14 minutes it's later. Like but it looks like he hasn't even moved. It's, it's like-, like every single minute is this man getting up. It's funny. I, I also noticed that when he's on the, the bus getting chased by mm. Joplin, he's still got the cat bag with him. And you see him walking towards the museum and there's a bin there. And I'm like, are you going to get rid of that cat bag? And finally he's like, oh, what am I doing? And just yeah. like dumps it in there. Yeah. I actually thought the death of Kobach's here was a little bit shocking. Like, like not the way, not the fact that he died, but just how they shut the door and his fingers get cut off. And I'm like, whoa. Like, very, very shocking. Because you haven't expected anything like that in this film so far. You're not Has expecting there been any violence of- in this no. film? No. So this was jarring. Yeah. Not as jarring as some scenes in some other Wes Anderson films, the suicide attempt in Royal Tenenbaums, for example. But this came from nowhere and was, whoa. Yeah, exactly. And so we actually get the prison breakout scene, which mm. I, after thinking about it- Excellent! Yeah, this was the other one that that uh, I thought about as being my favourite. It is it is very funny. My favourite bit of it, I know it's your favourite scene, I'll let you talk in a sec, but my favourite bit in it is when they're going through 
the guards' sleeping quarters. Yes! That is hilarious. Swinging over the top. Yeah, crawling, crawling under the bed. Leaping over the bed. Bouncing on the beds. It's like, what is this? Uh, it was very funny. Even when they pick up the ladder and you see them go across the screen, it looks like the longest ladder in the world. Like, yes. all, all eight of them are like, whatever they are, walking yeah. along with it. Once they finally break through the bars, they look out and it's like a mile to the ground. Yeah. Like, oh, no. <laughs> No, it was great. And even like it comes back where the big, big tall guy with the scar helps Wolf. him out. Yeah, because the other guy was going to rat him out for some strange reason. Mm. And even after all that, they get to the hole and there's guards playing poker. Like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> so the guy, you know, sacrifices himself with his throat slitter, kills yeah. everyone. Yep. And trusts Gustav to go with the. I suppose you'd call that a draw. Got to throw in a joke. A draw. Yeah. Four guards to one prisoner. <laughs> everyone <a> dies. <laughs> No, I thought this was great. Like what you said, the just the campiness of it. Like it's it's a prison breakout, but it's funny. Mm. Like you got to have obviously a sense of disbelief here. Like how is it that every single guard is asleep at once? There's no one else in the prison. Yeah, whatever. Like oh, for it's sure. funny as hell. I I loved it. It was it was just very enjoyable. So they've escaped here with Zero waiting for them at the escape hatch. You see where Ludwig says goodbye, kid, and slaps him on the face. Mm. That was done 42 times. Real. And it finally finished when Bill Murray was satisfied. Why? I don't know. What does Bill Murray have to do with this scene? I don't know. Because I read this and I was like, okay, until Bill Murray. And I was like, hang on a minute. He's not even in this scene. Like, is he what? a producer or something of the film? I don't know. He could- I don't think so. I didn't see his name on any of that stuff. Nah, but it's it's odd that it wouldn't be Wes Anderson saying, hold on. Yeah. You know, now we're good. Maybe, no, 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 it's Bill Murray. Maybe Wes Anderson was back at home in France and yeah, Bill Murray was overseeing everything. Mm. Yeah, but this is a sweet but still funny moment learning about Zero and the turmoil he's gone through in life because of the conversation, the dialect that Gustav has when the, the alarms are sounding, mm. the fact that he didn't bring his perfume. I haven't got a change of clothes. Oh, this scene's hilarious. Yeah. Like, he, he Gustav is brutal to Zero here. Yeah. He says he's a useless immigrant just because he didn't have a safe house and he disguises. <laughs> and most importantly, he didn't bring his Lair de Panache, which is his cologne that he uses a lot and actually translates to the air of plume. Now, Anderson actually had this product produced and gave it to his actors and actresses. Good on him. Good on him. That's, top, how, that's how he bloke. paid them. <laughs> so we get Ed Norton back on screen, always a welcome inclusion. So he's in the prison. He's trying to work out, you know, how's it all happened and what the hell is Joplin doing here? I have no idea. He's just standing there. It made no sense. A, how the hell did he get in? B, what sort of stupid killer is this guy that will just murder someone and then go to a prison where there are police there? Makes no sense. Well, they're not investigating that. These ones aren't. He's going, he's like, I represent the family of the deceased. It's like, well, what are you, what are you what doing do you here? Yeah, why do you need to be here? Go away. <laughs> Dumb. I love how they talk about the death of Kovacs and they have his, his death certificate and they scan down and there's just the thumbprint on the right hand. It's like yeah. four, missing four fingers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we see Gustav is calling for help and we get part four, the Society of the Crossed Keys. Hmm. I did like this, that there'd be this secret organisation of hotel concierges yeah. who could call to arms, you know, like it's very... First one here, buddy hell, it's Bill Murray. <laughs> well, I was wondering where he was. <laughs> yeah, I would have never expected him in any one of these films. <laughs> Oh, that's funny, Hendo. Well done. But now, he's got a massive, massive moustache. Of course he does. Now he's gone from beard to little mini moustache to shaved face. (laughs) Now he's got massive moustache. And I was talking about the circles before. This is where we get it all the time. Hmm. Every time one of the concierges calls the next one, the circle comes in. I'm like, why is this here now? And why did this tie into Joplin punching Zero? Hmm. It, It made no sense to me. Nothing new? Artistic choice. 
Sure. Go with that. I don't think there's a reason. And yet, we've got... Seinfeld guy. Bob Balaban. Does Wes Anderson have all these people on standby or something just ready to go? I mean, in fairness, what is Bob Balaban doing? He's doing Isle of Dogs next. <laughs> is he really? <laughs> He's one of the voices. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good on him. So, as we mentioned before, we got Dimitri at Madame D's house here in the room where the boy with the apple should be, and he realises it's gone. Did you know what the painting that they replace it with is called? I could say something completely vulgar here, but go go for it. Well, I mean, it is vulgar. It's two lesbians masturbating. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, really? <laughs> I was, <laughs> was going to say something similar. <laughs> no, it actually is. So, it was actually made especially for this film. Oh, of course. And, in, and apparently somehow inspired by Wes Anderson's works. Very mm. odd. But we do get the maid of the house, played by Leah Sado, and she rats out Gustave and says that they took it, basically. Yeah. Which I'm not sure really puts her in a good light. No, she should have kept her mouth shut. Or she should have told him immediately. Yeah. Like, what is the benefit to it now? Yeah, exactly. Oh, and then we get this reveal. We get this local girl's head found. No, before that, you have Agatha packing up her, oh, her yep, room, yep, yep, yep. and then you hear that noise. That someone's there. Yep. And then it cuts to the police station, and it is a good bait and switch here where oh, yeah. you would think that it's I her. For sh- I for sure thought it was her. Did you? Yeah. Did no. you? No. I thought it was the sister. Really? I did. Mostly because I knew that she vi- she survived. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. But it, it, it worked perfect. Like, yeah. you thought it was her. I, I really did. Yeah. And then when the head was lifted, I was like, who is that? <laughs> I was like, oh, that's that woman. I was like, is that Gustave's sister? No, it's Serge's. Yeah, that's right. Serge's sister has been decapitated. So we have Joplin getting his motorbike filled up with a little cameo here from Lucas Hedges, once again, fresh from his role in Moonrise Kingdom earlier. Mm. Speaking of this little actor-actress triangle here, Cara Haywood, who played Susie in Moonrise Kingdom, is actually the girlfriend of Lucas Hedges in Manchester by the Sea, and Lucas Hedges and Shersha Ronan are boyfriend and girlfriend in Lady Bird. Mm. There you go. There you go. Little tie in there. And so Zero and Gustav have escaped on a train, but they quickly, they luckily, they get off before the train stops. But as we've prone to know already, he uses an excessive amount of perfume that there's a very big after smell. And so when an air of plume, you could say. That's right. So when Ed Norton gets to the train, sticks his nose, he goes, "Oh, they were here. He knew they were. He knew he knew what was going on." Hmm. So they head to the summit here. Lots of dicking around for Gustav, where everyone's asking him, are you Gustav from the Grand Budapest Hotel? Finally, Sasha goes, yes, I'm bloody Gustav. Stop asking me. (laughs) And so he gets to the confessional where he finally sees Serge. Yeah, they're all dressed in their robes. Yeah. I love the back and forth style of conversation here, the snap back and forth with the editing. Keeps the comedic timing spot on here. I love the... Forgive me, Monsieur Gustave. I never meant to betray you. They threatened my life and now they murdered my only family. No. Who'd they kill this time? My dear sister. The girl with the club foot? Yes. Those fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Just cuts back to that. I thought that was funny. But Serge gets killed here. And as they come out, they see Joplin and he runs away. Now, yeah, we've I'm, established I'm with- him as this menacing character. I'm with you. Why is Joplin running? Like, why does he just go in and kill Gustav? Yeah. It, like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, why is he running away from him? I yeah. thought that was very odd. Yeah. And again, much like the building jump before, this almost ridiculous animated style of this chase yeah, down yeah, the hill yeah, yeah. fits well with the movie. It does. And it culminates in Gustav hanging off this cliff. And you think, oh, here we go. Joplin is about to kill him. Now, I mean, really, you don't ever really think he's going to die. But no. Zero. What a hero. He's Just- his feet sticking out of the ground. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. Yeah, no, it was good. I think I remember the, the first time I saw this scene, I wasn't a fan of it because this was my first Wes Anderson film I saw back four years ago. So I didn't know about this, you know, 
style he was so used to. And so when I was watching, I'm like, this is weird, random. <laughs> so this chase, I'm like, ugh. Yeah, I guess. When, you, when you've seen his other works, you definitely appreciate this more because it's not as bold and ridiculous. You've like, seen it all before. It's definitely bolder and mm. more ridiculous than most films. You're used to it. But yeah, you definitely, you go into a Wes Anderson film with certain expectations now. Yeah. And seeing it toned back a bit, it benefits the film. Yeah, exactly. You hear the Wilhelm scream off the off the cliff? No. What is it with you on this Wilhelm scream? Can you not tell the difference? I just, I'm not looking for it. I wasn't looking for uh, it, but I heard it. it. Nah, I didn't notice it. It was a really long Wilhelm scream. Okay, I'm sure it was. Don't talk to me like you don't know what a Wilhelm scream is. I know you, what a Wilhelm scream is. There's different podcasts where you have pointed out, well, oh, there was a Wilhelm scream. Yeah, but you do it all the time. Yeah, because I noticed it. And so we're at part five, the second copy of the second will. Mm. Again, 24 hours later. I didn't get this whole ZZ thing. What was that? Was- I mean, it's definitely a um, play on the SS Nazi police. Okay, so it was like the part of the war. Or I- even dressed like Nazis. I mean, so I didn't know if it was like part of the war or if it was like, like Adrian Brody's family thing taking over. I see now that when you, you say it, it's definitely soldiers of the yeah. war taking over. Yep, yep. Okay. And, oh my God, it's Owen Wilson. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> little, little stint here. Yeah, the replacement concierge. Yeah, being exactly like Owen Wilson is. Mm-hmm. No surprises there. We have Agatha sneaking in to get the painting, uh, bribing her way in with all her cakes. Yeah, and we almost get that same shot. I mean, it's a little different, but we get Dimitri looking up at Agatha with this painting. He's like, who's that? And she stops and she runs, just like Gustav did earlier. Yeah. I did find it funny when Gustav and Zero come in and they do the same shot with the cakes. They try to bribe the person at the front and it cuts to him and he's got like cake all over his face. Like, (laughs) hmm, give me more. (laughs) Even when they try to get into the elevator, they ask the new lobby boy, Otto, uh, where's this person? Oh, he went up this way. He's like, oh, yeah. That's poor form. You shouldn't be saying that. You shouldn't be divulging that information. <laughs> what do you think of this massive gunfight that comes up here? Uh, I mean, it's it's a Wes Anderson gunfight. Probably the weakest part of the film for me. Yeah, like... Like, I think he thinks that, oh, action at the end of the film, you know, sort of needed and it's big and dramatic, but it just... I tune off. Honestly, I was watching, I'm like, eh, this is just stupid. Yeah, I didn't think anything of this, but honestly... Yep, yep. Especially but- with... Owen Wilson now standing there next to Edward, Edward Norton. Like, what are you doing there? Mm. What do you have to do with this? Mm. But we have Zero run off to help Agatha, who's hanging off the side of the building. You get that somewhat old school timey comedic slapsticky where he goes to charge at the door. And just when he does it, he op- the guy opens the door and he comes running through and falls off the balcony as well. Mm. That's very like Charlie Chaplin style comedy. Yeah, definitely hadn't seen anything like that in uh, the film so far. But luckily, this is where they find out there's an envelope in the back, yeah. which, which it basically, which I mentioned before, which uh, Serge mentioned before in the confessional that there is a letter. Yeah, a that, second copy. Yeah, of a second, second copy of the will where yep. if she dies by murder, then there's a new will, yep. which turns out goes all to Gustav. Everything she has. Which honestly makes sense. Like clearly the kids aren't very nice to her. No. And Gustav is extremely nice to her. They mentioned that Dimitri has disappeared. That's all they mentioned of him. Hmm. He doesn't go to prison, doesn't die. He's just disappeared. Maybe setting up a uh, Grand Budapest Hotel too. The revenge. <laughs> Kill Gustav. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was him who put the border patrol there. Hmm. Quite unfortunate to hear that Agatha ended up dying over Krupp. Yeah, it was sad. And their son as well. Yeah, it was mm. very sad. And it does you know, obviously explain why Mr. Mustafa is how he is in the 60s. But I like how he mentions that she died of croup, which is something they could be they could be treated in a second these yep. days. Yeah. But back then they didn't know. M- millions died from it. And it's like 
that with most diseases. We have cures for half these things that wiped out you know, populations back in the day. And I'm sure that there's things that we get now which will be cured in the blink of an eye in 100 years' time. I hope so. I mean, hopefully in a couple hundred years, cancer is just a, you know, a tablet. Yep, take the pill. Yeah. Yeah. And even here, we see the death of Gustav. We don't see him die, but we see this is the point where we, he meets his demise when they stop at the train again. Mm. And the soldiers come out and he, he does it again. He sacrifices himself for zero yeah, here. Puts himself on the line for it. I'll- I did like the way the soldier just tore up yeah. um, Heckle's little <laughs> note saying, don't molest them. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, you find out he was shot right there. Mm-hmm. You know, disappointing, but- Disappointing. Well. <laughs> All right. It's, it works for the story. Get yep, rid of Gustav. Yeah, it's perfect. Um, everything goes to zero. Agatha's dead. So, it all fits in with, you know, where the story's got to end up. Exactly. And so, we get back to the 60s here. Did you notice- the boy with the apple painting is behind the concierge. I did. And apparently it's on the back of the restaurant uh, menus as well. Yeah, I didn't notice the menu one. I definitely did noticed it on the- Did you notice it now? You didn't obviously didn't notice it at the start. Because that's no. what I was thinking, like, was that there earlier? You wouldn't have picked up on it because you weren't looking for it. You wouldn't it. pick up on it. I'm sure it was there, though. Yeah, it had to be. And that's the end of it. Any last words? All right, Dean, what's your final thoughts on the Grand Budapest Hotel? All right, for me, this movie is a treat to watch. The visuals throughout are stunning and the score fits with the film's comedic tone- Perfectly. The array of unique characters is entertaining, and despite there being so many characters and different time periods going on, the film never really feels convoluted or hard to follow. I would say the many instances of going back in time serve to keep audiences wondering and curious rather than confused and frustrated. It's very much a Wes Anderson film. All his little trademarks and quirky things he does all come together so perfectly in this film. They're not over the top, which has been the case in the past, and they're not so underdone that they're not there. You see him, and this time you really appreciate them. I really appreciated Wes Anderson and his art watching this film, where in a lot of other movies you watch it and you're just sort of like, oh, all right, get this Wes Anderson-isms out of the way so we can get back to the good stuff. Here it just fit the story perfectly. For me, the probably my biggest complaint would be I didn't get emotionally involved with any of the characters. Probably the only time I actually felt for any of these characters was at the end when Zero explains that Agatha and his child died. Other than that, I really didn't emotionally connect to any of these characters. But at the end of the day, it is a comedy at heart, and you don't really get a lot of that in comedies anyway. So for me, very good film from Wes Anderson, and I've really enjoyed going back and rewatching it. What about you, Hendo? What are your final thoughts? Yeah, I really enjoyed this movie too. Wes Anderson has obviously mastered his style of craft by now, and it really shows in this one. The use of aspect ratio is done well to convey the different timelines. If you pick up on it. That's right. <laughs> the story within a story within a story could have easily turned into a confusing mess, but with a good use of narration, the story flows well. The script is so witty and funny at the same time, and really accentuated the characteristics of it, especially Gustav, played wonderfully by Ray Fiennes. The cinematography is great too, and everyone acting in their bit parts were all done well too. Watching it for a second time, now knowing the style of Wes Anderson quite well, I was much more entertained than I was the first time around when I had no idea who this Wes Anderson guy was. And for me, this was a really fun and enjoyable, quirky and unique film that I could easily watch again. I was the best because the crowd loved me. Okay, Dean, where is this going to sit on your rankings? Well, I do like this film a lot, as you well know. Yes. So I'm going to start it off at about number 20. So number 20 at the moment is It's a Wonderful Life. I think it's better than that, to be honest. It's definitely more rewatchable. Next up, it's Against the Prestige. 
Again, a very strong movie. Just feel like Grand Budapest is better. Mm-hmm. A Beautiful Mind, again, better than A Beautiful Mind. Now we get to The Thing, which I also would give four stars to. And I actually think this is where it's going to stop. Okay. I, th- I think The Thing is better than The Grand Budapest Hotel. So I'm going to put The Grand Budapest Hotel at number 18. Okay. Out of 31 now. Yes, 31 films. What about you, Hendo? Well, I'm going to start it off around the same area. Let's start it off at number 20. Is this better than Vertigo? I do think it is better than Vertigo. Is it better than Once Upon a Time in America? How dare you? It's better than Once Upon a Time in America. I would easily watch this before Once Upon a Time in America again. I would watch Once Upon a Time in America three times before I'd watch this one more time. Yeah, we all know you you love the bloody film. Let's knock it off. (laughs) So, same as you. Is this better than The Thing? Oh, I agree with you. I think The Thing is a better film than The Grand Budapest Hotel. Nice. Yeah, so I'm going to put The Grand Budapest Hotel as my new number 19 out of 31. Okay, very good. Hey, Topher, I was doing an etymology search because, well, who needs a reason? Turns out watch comes from the proto-Germanic word watchen, meaning be awake. Interesting if true, Billy. So our podcast, We Watched a Thing, really just means we stayed awake for something. Oh uh, Yeah, or at least most of it. Well, having been awake is about all the credentials we can really lay claim to when it comes to talking about movies. Speak for yourself, I've got legit IMDB credit. Well, all the visual effects experience in the world doesn't change the fact that you found passengers so emotionally touching that you cried. Oh yeah, taste guidelines from the cameraman who likes Jedi more than Empire, really? Ewoks are the best. Are they? Yes. And if you, dear listener, feel there aren't enough semi-informed cinematic opinions in your life, then a weekly dose of We Watched a Thing is for you. We Watched a Thing. We stay awake in everything. Find us at wewatchedathing.com or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else good podcasts are found. Hey listeners, we just want to take a quick second here to thank you all for taking the time out of your day to come and listen to us banter on about movies and all things movie related. Yeah, it really does mean a lot to the both of us. We're always looking to improve our show to get our name out there and there's a couple of ways you can help us. Yeah, one of the easiest ways is to just get the word of mouth out there. You know, let your family and friends know about the show and where they can find us, which is pretty much everywhere. Places like Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, and another personal favourite of mine, CastBox. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, you can contact us on Twitter at twitter.com slash imdbjourney, our Facebook page at facebook.com slash imdbjourney, or you can email us at imdbjourney at gmail.com. Exactly. Another way to help us out is to leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes for us. Or if you're really loving the content and are looking for more, why not check out our Patreon, where we post another weekly show, breaking down films not on the IMDb Top 250 list. Yeah, that's right. What have we got coming up this week, Hendo? Well, Dean, we're into our X-Men series at the moment. Deep into the X-Men series. Very deep. We've gone through X-Men. three claws deep. Three claws, that is exactly right. We've already done X-Men. We did X2 last week. And this week coming up is X-Men The Last Stand. It's going to be an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come now. It, it has its, its uh, merits, I think. We'll wait and find out, won't we? Absolutely. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, head on over to patreon.com slash imdbjourney and check out the myriad of rewards and benefits we have to offer. Have you ever wondered which movie franchise is best and why? Or why Eric Matthews is the most interesting character on Boy Meets World? Or even how a small town in upstate New York became a hotbed for strange and paranormal activity? Then tune in to a podcast about something as I dig into these subjects and more every Monday with help from a special guest. And stay tuned for a podcast about football where every week... 
of the NFL season, we round up the previous week's action and make can't-miss picks against the spread for the following week. After you listen, give us a rating and review, and for more great content, visit our website, apodcastaboutsomething.com, and follow us on Twitter, at APA something. Okay, now it's time for... We may still have mail. Mail, mail, mail. Here it is, and this could be it. Uh... Okay, we've got a couple of reviews here for the Grand Budapest Hotel on Twitter. First one here from the Bang Average Movie Podcast. Nate loved it. I thought it was meh. He loves the cinematography, but for me, even though it looks pretty, it's much more style than substance. Ray Fiennes is amazing, though. Next up here from the Casual Cinecast Podcast. Personally, I think this is a top three Anderson film. His best recent movie. It's nostalgic, sad, and funny with a wonderful central performance from Fines. Here's one from Tom Schutzer. The Grand Budapest Hotel is a modern cinematic treasure. The humour, the cinematography, the production design, the script, the pure joy. Everything about this film is perfect. If you haven't seen this yet, please rectify that immediately. Next up from Tom Hanks Defence Force. We both loved it, especially how every shot is like a photo. Here's one from Kevin Brackett. I love The Grand Budapest Hotel. Probably my favourite Wes Anderson movie of all time. I'm a big fan of his, but this is perfection. Strong words there, Kevin. Last one on Twitter. From the cinema guys, this is one of the few Wes Anderson movies I enjoy. Ooh, it's a backhanded compliment. Yeah, just a bit. <laughs> no, thank you, everyone, for your reviews on Twitter. But let's get into our emails, and we've got... Shame! It's official, then. Wes Anderson's last good movie was Life Aquatic. Since then, we've had four bad-to-average films. Grand Budapest is thankfully average. (sighs) I could sum up the last four Anderson films in one word each. Darjeeling? Pointless. Fantastic Mr. Fox? Incoherent. Moonrise Kingdom? Pretentious. The Grand Budapest has a little bit of all three. Just a little. What's my main gripe with the film then? It's hard to follow. Hard to identify with the characters. Hard to see it as anything but a colourful cartoon. It isn't real life. It's Wes Anderson's fantasy. Was there anything I liked? Mmm, Adrian Brody. (laughs) He was the villain. The film needed more of him. He basically stole the whole show. It was the best performance and character in a Wes Anderson film since Steve Zizou. Maybe even go back further. I don't buy that at all, Shane. Everything you've said is wrong so far. Everything. (laughs) What did I think of Ray Fiennes? He was okay. He wasn't annoying, but I never got on board with his character. Never got into his skin. He was little more than two-dimensional cardboard. Man, this is rough, Shane. The supporting cast, including Bill Murray, for the fourth thousandth time, was more like one-dimensional. Not good. (laughs) This review is rough. (laughs) Jeez. Not too surprised, since everyone keeps telling the guy how great his terrible films are. (laughs) He actually has the ability to make good films, if he has a good script, of course. Anyone who thinks this or Moonrise Kingdom is as good as Royal Tenenbaums needs their head checked, I think. Could be some bullshit in there. Oh, you're not going to like coming up. Jesus. Very aggressive there, Shane. But as always, we do appreciate the feedback. Oh, yes. Thank you, Shane, for that feedback. Okay, now it's time for... That's my question! The question, jerk! Where we asked you, what is your favourite Wes Anderson film? Now, just quickly, we did do a poll for this one where we had four options. Coming in last with 11% is Isle of Dogs, 25% for the Royal Tenenbaums, 28% for the Grand Budapest Hotel. But in an upset, you will not believe what actually won this. 36% went to Other. Other. (laughs) 
Twitter only gives you four options, okay? Well done. Good quality poll there. Well, well, why don't we look at what the other films would be? Here's one from Michael Riccardi, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Good choice there, mate. Next up from Paul at the Countdown Podcast. It's a short damn list, but his first film, Bottle Rocket, is my fave. Are you serious, Paul? You could not be more wrong, mate. That movie is not good, Paul. Here's one from the Tasteless Podcast. The Royal Tenenbaums. I'll defend Gwyneth always. Fair enough. Next up from patron Ben Mulverhill. Grand Budapest Hotel is the only five-star film of his for me, and it's high on my list of all-time favourites. Hilarious and stunning visually. Here's one from the short and sweet film reviews, The Royal Tenenbaums. From the pop-up film cast, not only my favourite Wes Anderson film, but one of my overall favourite movies. Fantastic Mr. Fox. Lovely choice. Got one here from Kate Rushmore. Not enough people have seen this movie. I feel like it got overshadowed by films like Napoleon Dynamite and Superstar. I haven't even heard of Superstar. From I, Simon, Moonrise Kingdom. Here's one from Todd Johnson, Tennyson, Wiggins. The Royal Tenenbaums, probably the most sophisticated one. Actually, all of them are that. From another patron, Dave at Super Movie Bros. Life Aquatic. The colour palette is stunning. Bill Murray is hilarious as well as the rest of the cast. Definitely the most quotable. Here's one from Dreezy, The Royal Tenenbaums. Not just a great soundtrack, but a great use of the songs, fantastic ensemble, funny, and a tender use of montage. I've had a rough year, Dad. Plus, Bill Murray looks like an owl. Okay, from Jackson. It's tough. I recently watched Isle of Dogs and loved it. Though Moonrise Kingdom, a close second for me. Cody David says it's got to be a toss-up of either Rushmore or the Royal Tenenbaums. And lastly on Twitter, from Pod Sound School, the Darjeeling Limited. And over on our Facebook page from Kim Dusting, I always wanted to be a Tenenbaum. It's random. I'm not sure that being a Tenenbaum is a good thing. It's not. Yeah, okay. Chris Wooldridge says the Grand Budapest Hotel. And the last one here on Facebook from Clint Chafee, Moonrise Kingdom. Now, thank you very much, everyone, for your responses on Twitter and on Facebook. But, Dean, let's get to our top five Wes Anderson films. Yes, let's. I'll kick this one off. My number five is Moonrise Kingdom. Well, we might be going on the same route here, Dean. My number five is also Moonrise Kingdom. Okay, I might have a little curveball here for you, though, Hendo. Number four for me is Darjeeling Limited. Ah, okay. My number four is Isle of Dogs. Ah, my number three is Isle of Dogs. Ah, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, My number three is Fantastic Mr. Fox. (laughs) Nah, terrible. My number two is the Royal Tenenbaums. Ooh, same for me. Number two, Royal Tenenbaums. Sure we have the same number one. I mean, how can we not? Grand Budapest Hotel. Absolutely. Number one Wes Anderson film. All right, Dean, let's have a discussion about our Academy Awards draft. The results. Let's. What did you think of the Academy Awards this year? I was surprised that it was not too bad. I thought it was going to be a train wreck, and I was happy with... The whole ceremony, I thought it went uh, quite quick. I was, I liked the fact there was no host. It just, it, it was smooth. It kept going. Like there was no dicking around. It, kept, it just, let's do it. Award, award, award. That's what I want. Yeah. Once they got over the initial, you know, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, the other one, Maya Rudolph, who's not funny. Um, once they got over that little hump of, yeah, you know, admitting we've had some fuck ups here. Yeah. Let's get back on track. Once they did that, it was great. They don't need a host. No, they really don't. Having all these, like, just... Because they have presenters yeah, anyway. Coming out for a one-off. Like, that they do good. it anyway. Yeah. It's fine. It was good. I, I really was surprised. The show was good. Shallow. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. That was a, a standout. It was, definitely. Mm. As for the winners, not too bad. Uh, to a degree. I mean, Green Book winning Best Picture. It could have been better. I, I wasn't... 
you know, angry or anything that that happened. Like, whatever. I mean, thank God it wasn't Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, that annoyed me. I mean, the way, the way it was going, it's just like, all right, music. Best edited, give me a fucking yeah. break. Yep. And Rami Malek is not good as Freddie Mercury. Neither was his speech. I love, oh, no, I didn't like that either. But people are going crazy over it. I love that they show the clip of oh, yes. is Rami Malek nominated for Best Actor. Let's show him in this little clip acting. It's just him fucking lip syncing at a piano. Fake playing a piano. Like, come on. That's that's then the you one got you're picking. Bradley Cooper, who actually learnt to sing, learnt to play guitar, fucking directed the movie. Nah, no good. Give it to Rami. How awkward was the people coming up for I think it was the makeup and hairstyling? They were just rattling off names to the point where they played the music. They wouldn't get off the stage. They like basically turned the lights off on them. Yeah. Like, get off the stage. Yeah. That was awkward. But enough about the actual ceremony, Dean. Let's talk about our results. Why don't we have a chat about the draft we did first? Now, as I was watching it, I was keeping tally. And fair to say, after eight awards, I was shitting bricks because I think it was like seven to one in your behalf. Yeah, I was smashing you. Yeah. But boy, did I get a resurgence in the middle there. Yeah. So much so that I believe I got back up to it was like ten to eight, yep. some degree. Uh, but with the results, like the awards at the at the end of the ceremony, just looking at what was most likely going to win, I still felt like I had a very difficult journey ahead of me. Yeah, yeah, to the point where I'm pretty. It was basically over once Black Panther won best score, and you had that, and I had Bill Street. So I think at that point it was it was done for. Even though I basically had best picture lock for two points. You you had the the actress and the actor. I think I had Bohemian Rhapsody for Best Picture, didn't I? Uh, I think you had that and maybe Vice as well. Yeah. Those are the two. So I knew I knew I had that, but because you had Quaran for director and you had Malik and Bale for actor, yep. I was yep. yeah done. I was done for. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, it was basically over by that point. You'd won that draft. That um, fantastic. Yeah, it was good good start to you. But let's go look at the rankings. Where gradually over the course of the awards. I just continued to take a lead on you. A little bit of points here, a little bit of points there. Yeah. To the point where the only way you could have tied was if Bohemian Rhapsody won Best Picture. So nice. that was the only time I was I knew there was a very reason nervous. I was rooting for Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> but no, Green Book did win that, obviously. So in the end, I won the ranking. So it was a 1-1 victory for the both of us. So as discussed, we need to give each other three movies each for winning one or losing one, however you want to say it. Yes, and we've given ourselves uh, the time until we get up to Pod V Pod 16 to watch these. So that's three weeks for us. Okay, so why don't you give me my first film? All right, I think you're going to like how this starts off. Am I? I'm going to give you... You're laughing already. <laughs> I'm going to give you the first Hobbit. I'm ready to change my fucking movies here. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Give me a three-hour movie here. Oh, get ready for Big Story 3. <laughs> you better fucking not, mate. Oh, we'll have to wait and see. All right, so I'm watching the first Hobbit. God. You never know. You might love it so much. You won't ever need me to give you two and three. This is not going to help my movie-watching numbers. <laughs> okay, well, my first film I'm giving you is a foreign film that I think is the only film you haven't seen on my top films of 2017 now, and that is Land of Mine. Nice. Yeah, no, that's one I'm definitely uh, happy to see. Cool. What's my second one, you prick? Uh, I'm going to go, I feel like maybe I wasn't being very kind on my first pick, so I think maybe it's time for me to do the right thing here. Oh. And give you the second. <laughs> oh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I'm going to give you do the right thing. Yes. Awesome. Definitely high on my watch list. I've just always just skipped over it, but 
Awesome. Yeah, Good watching choice. Spike Lee there and they kept mentioning it. Like, I haven't seen it either, so I'd love for you to watch it. Tell me it's terrible and I know that I'm not missing out on anything. All right, cool. Well, the next film I'm giving you is Bronson. Awesome. Yeah. Tom Hardy. Yep. Doing Tom Hardy things. Yep. Fantastic. See, I'm nice to you. That is nice. Yeah. Well done. What's my last one? For your third pick, I'm going to give you a bit of an older film. One cool. that I like old films. One that is a bit of a cult classic, maybe. And I'm not sure if you've seen it. I'm going to give you Highlander. Ooh, no, I haven't seen Highlander. Nice. Cool. All right. So I just want to ask you a quick question here. What is the most recent best picture film that you haven't seen? Is this punishment for giving you the English patient? <laughs> oh, I genuinely want to know what, what it is. It's Chicago. Yeah, okay. Well, you can watch Chicago then. Okay. I'm not expecting much. That's yeah, fine. Okay. It's full on musical, isn't it? It's half and half. It's like there's a movie in there and then they break out in a song. Okay. All right. No, that's okay. All right. So All right. that's not our three bad, films. Not a bad little selection. Yeah. I mean, you know, two of mine look good. Okay, Dean, let's take a look at the results of our Pod V Pod V Pod V Pod movie draft where we drafted films in the IMDb Top 50. Now let's go through the teams real quick here. Billy from We Watch a Thing had The Empire Strikes Back, The Godfather, Spirited Away, The Departed, and Seven Samurai. Sam from Movie Reviews and 20 Qs had Pop Fiction, Star Wars A New Hope, The Silence of the Lambs, Casablanca, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Paul at the Countdown Podcast had The Dark Knight, The Shawshank Redemption, Saving Private Ryan, The Godfather Part 2, and The Matrix. And I myself had Back to the Future, Terminator 2, Fight Club, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, and Inception. Okay, let's take a look at some responses to this. First one here from the I Used to Watch This podcast. He's gone with Paul at the countdown. The Matrix, Shawshank, and Saving Private Ryan is a hard one to pass up. Likewise, Ghosts of the Stratosphere say Paul's team is just too stacked. Our good buddy John Mark Junkins says, Gotta go with Sam here. Three of my top ten movies. Brook Reading Podcast says, Ah, it's a toss-up between Sam and Dean. We've got one here from Jack Shipley, and he's gone He's gone into detail of his reasoning here. Oh, is this the guy who had, like, multiple tweets? Yeah. Listen okay, to this. Do it. This is a really difficult list to work through. If there's one film on this list I really didn't like, it's The Departed. I find it highly overrated. That eliminates Billy for me. Shocker that Billy's out first. It's between the other... <laughs> Sorry, Billy. <laughs> so it's between the other three. I used to love Star Wars, but I find that the franchise's current problems have soured my fondness. I enjoyed Pulp Fiction a lot and for many years, but now I don't feel connected to it. The other three are brilliant films, but Sam is eliminated. So it's between Paul and Dean. Inception is the weakest film in the remaining field. Lord of the Rings is so strong, though. Is it strong enough? No, it isn't. Every film in Paul's is considered rewatchable. I have to go with Paul. All right. Thanks a lot for that, Jack. Next up from Gidget Von LaRue. Tough pick. But Sam gets it for me. A face mainly your mother could love, Dean, or Fantastic Four. I'm going to get sued, aren't I? <gasps> James Spence says, Dean, even though Lord of the Rings sucks. And finally, Eric B says, Paul. Okay, let's take a look at the results here. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's go from the bottom up. I mean... Okay, so who, I don't who's, mean it. who's the worst? I don't mean it. <laughs> but last, yet again, is Billy with 12%. We do love you, though, Billy. Uh... Dean, you're next with 18%. That's fine. It's respectable. As long so, as I wasn't last. <laughs> so it did end up coming down between Sam and Paul. And 33% goes to Paul, which means that Sam wins yet again with 37% of the vote. Commanding lead. Yeah, pretty much had it from the get-go and didn't lose it at any point. Yeah, Paul did have Much a, like the questions. Paul did have a decent fight back, but yeah. Yeah, it was really Sam from the jump. 
So well done, Sam. Yeah, very good, very good. To everyone, they had a great time. <laughs> yes, hopefully they did. <laughs> okay, let's take a look at the final four results in our best 1950s film tournament. All right, first battle here, we've got 12 Angry Men against Sunset Boulevard. Just ran away with it, did 12 Angry Men, 80% to Sunset's 20 and our second match here is the Hitchcock battle, Vertigo against Rear Window. My God, was it close. As close as it could be, mate, without calling it a tie. 51% to the winner, and it's Rear Window. Stunned. I thought it was Vertigo for sure. Really? Yeah. I, I picked Rear Window. Did you? Yeah, I did. Well, you've already won, so who gives a shit? <laughs> okay, that means our grand final in our best 1950s film tournament is going to be the number two seed, 12 Angry Men, against the number three seed, Rear Window. Very nice. Yeah, that's going to be an inter- interesting one. Mm, I mean, I 12 know. Angry Men has run away with a lot of it, but... Yeah, it has. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. We'll see. So, what's next? All right, it's time to find out what movie... Oh. We already know what movie we're We've doing, aren't we? Yep. It's Stand By Me. It is. Your yes. pick. That's right. So that's going to happen in a fortnight. But that's it for this podcast. It is. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed our review breakdown of the Grand Budapest Hotel. I know I did. As you should. <laughs> <laughs> No, so next week, we've got our Pod v Pod 15 coming up. Got some fantastic guests lined up for that one. And we'll be talking about what else we've been watching. And it has been a while since we've done that, my friend. Oh, I'm not looking forward to this. Oh, <laughs> gonna... You'll have like 70 movies to my five. Now, I won't be talking about films <laughs> I've rewatched, so that's cut them in half, basically. And the What Else We've Been Watching segment is actually changing a little bit. So keep an eye out for that. It's going to make it a bit more condensed because... I know you personally, Dean, don't want to hear me rattle on, rattle on about 20, 30 movies. No, I don't. <laughs> so I really don't. We've got a new structure where it's going to be a little bit more contained. But until then, listeners, thank you very much. We will see you next week for Pod V Pod 15. Bye.